0: Good morning everyone, at least it's morning where I am, it's 5 a.m. It's another episode of Causes or Cures and I'm really excited about this topic today because I believe it's a topic that affects everybody I know and that topic is Alzheimer's disease. I don't know if you've ever watched a loved one go through it but it's absolutely heartbreaking to watch someone you love lose their cognitive abilities Sometimes their ability to recognize you, it's awful. And you might be wondering, is there anything I can do to treat this? Am I going to get it? What are my risk factors? Is there anything I can do to prevent it? These are all questions that I have too. Um, and I think a lot of us have. You're not alone. So I'm super excited to have Dr. Douglas Watt to talk about these um, these questions that we have, he is calling in via Skype from Florida. So he's taking time out of his busy day. Uh, So we did the best with the recordings that we could. Um, Who is he? Well, he was on Causes or Cures before. He did the episode on the social brain hypothesis for depression. So if you struggle with depression, I highly recommend listening to that one. And as it were, depression is an independent risk factor for Alzheimer's disease as well. My sister, she's a physician outside of Philadelphia, and she called me after listening to that episode and was like, that was fantastic, that was great, because he explains things and he tells you things that, you know, you don't really hear in medical school because a lot of the theories are are drug biased, to be honest. Um. Okay, so who is Dr. Douglas Watt for a refresher? He is a senior clinical neuropsychologist. He's on the faculty of the Boston University School of Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and the Boston Institute for the Study of Violence. He's been the director in chief of two clinical neuropsychology departments in Boston. Um, He has written over 60 peer reviewed publications on emotion, cognition, the brain and behavior, multiple textbook chapters. And lately he's been traveling around the world and lecturing about the various forms of dementia associated with Alzheimer's disease. So let's, Take a listen to what he has to say. Um, I've already recorded this. And so, you know, because I needed to learn too, and I wanted to learn, um, I did a lot of listening and a lot less talking. So you're mostly going to hear him talk. Um, And by the way, as scary of a topic as this is, and as heartbreaking as a topic as it is, I left the podcast after I did it. I felt hopeful. I felt very hopeful. And I hope you feel hopeful too because he says a lot of good things in there that anybody can do to help lower their risk. Okay, let's just get started.
1: On the line we have Dr. Douglas Watt who's gonna talk about Alzheimer's disease. And so thank you for being on the line. And I guess uh, maybe just talk about why you got interested in this.
2: Uh, well, thank you for inviting me, Erin. It's as I said earlier, it's it's always a privilege to teach. So, um, yeah, that that's an interesting question in itself. How in the world did I end up in this <laughs> strange uh, domain of nerve generative disorders? Um, you know, like a lot of journeys, a fair amount of it is serendipity, and sort of after a series of left and right turns, you you end up in a territory that you didn't even know existed. Uh, before you started making those turns, um, it, it started out with an interest, really a more general interest in the brain and sort of, you know, the central question in neuroscience, like how does the mind emerge from the brain? Um, and I was a clinician um, and uh, got training as a neuropsychologist. And, and of course, you know, Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative disorders, other dementing disorders is kind of what's out there. So about 35 years ago, I I kind of started doing a really progressive deep dive into the biology of, of AD and, and related things uh, because I just wanted to understand what I was seeing clinically. You know, why were people losing, uh, Short-term memory, and then other functions from there. What did all that mean? Uh, so it's it's been a long project, in a sense, to educate myself. Uh, especially since my my formal education was was terribly short on that. Um, and when I was younger, I had a kind of <laughs> uh, disinterest in biology because um, it was sort of like history it was all this qualitative descriptive stuff and i always thought science was you know hard mathematics and hard uh, mathematically based predictions and i didn't see much of that in biology so i thought well, this isn't really a science of course that's not really true but the, the mathematics of biology something that we'll talk about as central to the alzheimer's disease puzzle it's it's non-linear. Um, things in biology are not billiard balls, uh, but but massive recursive loops. In other words, um, everything in biology, whether it's, you know, whether you're interested, say, in the, the population of a species and what regulates that population, or whether you're interested in sort of much smaller scales like, you know, cell signals or inflammation or basically any topic in biology, um, whatever you're interested in is regulated by an enormous collection of negative and positive feedback factors. What I call the the principle of recursion Um, and whatever feedback factors and whatever factors we can map that regulate your phenomena of interest. um, You have to assume that that's a partial list. In other words, there are factors we don't know about. And their interactions we don't know about between factors. And, you know, we're always discovering some new cell signal or some additional mm-hmm. aspect, say, to inflammation or uh, metabolic function or, again, any domain in biology that fits into this forest of, of recursions. And in that sense, I, I really think biology is a place where you had better practice humility. And I think in a real sense, the the most troubling story about Alzheimer's disease is the large scale failure of scientific humility. Um, In other words, the the dominant idea, we'll get into this more as we start exploring this. The dominant idea has been a kind of appealing oversimplification that that amyloid, um, which is a product of, um, several protein interactions, creating a molecule called beta amyloid. Amyloid is really a family of molecules, not a single molecule, but in any case that because Alzheimer's disease was marked by amyloid, um, and because there was some evidence that amyloid was critical to neurodegeneration or had at least some relationship to neurodegeneration, that therefore, amyloid was the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And this is the amyloid cascade hypothesis in a nutshell. And it's been the dominant idea in the field since the early 90s.
1: Just that amyloid keeps building up.
2: Well, it, it you know, maybe we can just dive right into <laughs> since since I've already opened up a can of worms by, by mentioning this, I might as well explain myself. Um, Amyloid, um, as I said, is a family of proteins um, created from something called the amyloid precursor protein. And now we know there, there actually are several other molecules that are kind of like the precursor protein. And we know that, you know, this big, long molecule, which sticks sort of through cell membranes and and even uh, inside of cells, uh, that big, long protein, it's you know hundreds of amino acids is cleaved by several enzymes. If it's cleaved by something called the alpha secretase, um, this yields a, Uh, protein called uh, sap alpha s a p p alpha and from everything we know this protein is essential to brain function and interestingly enough essential but to the ability of the the brain to compensate for age-related change and to maintain cognitive status um, in the face of aging um, it has a whole bunch of, of what we would call pro-plasticity functions, um, including um, helping neurons to resist uh, what's called programmed cell death. And for people who don't know what that means, programmed cell death is kind of cells committing suicide in a sense because they're dysfunctional in a, any number of ways. And it's a way of, of pruning out, you know, either dysfunctional cells or even rogue cells, in other words, precancerous cells. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So this sap alpha um, helps uh, neurons grow new connections. Um, It uh, promotes what's called synapse formation. Um, And it looks really essential as a plasticity protein so this cleavage of the precursor protein by this alpha secretase um, looks like it's vital to cognitive function and to long-term brain health interestingly enough if you take that same precursor protein and cleave it with a different enzyme uh, beta secretase as it's called and then uh, A a secondary cleavage sort of inside the membrane by something called a gamma secretase you create this fragment called beta amyloid Um, and beta amyloid itself comes in several forms and you know an interesting question is so you know what's the difference I mean in other words uh, what's the difference between this alpha pathway and the beta pathway well That's still not entirely understood, but it looks like in a young person who's healthy and who does not have any form of infection, almost all of our cleavage of the precursor protein is in the alpha direction. And when you, by the way, when you create this alpha fragment, you preclude the formation of the beta fragment. In other words, these are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. So if you create the the sap alpha, you prevent the formation of beta amyloid. Um, So in that sense, it's a functional bifurcation uh, in what we would call proteolysis or in, in protein processing or proteostasis. An interesting, you know, central question, of course, is, well, what determines which direction the system goes? because obviously that might have a huge uh, relationship to um, Alzheimer's disease. And the answer there is, well, like everything else in biology, there's no single factor, but um, one way to get more beta amyloid and less of this alpha fragment is to generate uh, signals of infection. And other things related to aging, in other words, when you, when you lose amine signals, in other words, when a neuron is not getting amine or cholinergic signals or is sort of disconnected from those signals, it's more likely to transition into the beta amyloid pathway um, when it's not getting sex hormones, which of course is another age-related change. It is more likely to segue into the beta amyloid and away from this alpha uh, alpha pathway. And um, perhaps the biggest factor, or at least a big factor, is, again, inflammatory signals. Um, in other words, any signal of viral or fungal or bacterial infection um, drives the system towards the production of beta amyloid. And this is really a, a a central issue that the amyloid cascade hypothesis has totally failed to address, or, or at least mostly failed to address. These uh, proteins and these secretases are selected processes, they're built into our genome. So they must have an adaptive function, They, you know. <laughs> Uh, something goes awry with that, perhaps, in in Alzheimer's disease, but they have an adaptive basis, so they wouldn't be there. And it looks as though beta amyloid may have a couple of, of physiologic roles. One is that it is an antimicrobial protein. Um, it's involved in innate immunity, as we call it. Um, it's involved in... Um, combating viruses, funguses, and bacteria. Um, the second function that it may have is that it's a, um, a way of downregulating regulating synapses uh, or pruning synapses, perhaps. Um, in other words, if the alpha secretase sort of promotes and proliferates synapses, the, the beta amyloid fragment is um, may do the reverse and obviously there has to be a balance of these things um, because you don't want you know too much synaptic pruning uh, that gets you in trouble Um, but you have to have some so in that sense um, perhaps what's going awry is a balance between plasticity promotion of plasticity factors and inflammation Um, and related processes. And we've we've known for a long time that that the immune system is involved in pruning synapses. For example, in schizophrenia, there's a lot of evidence that schizophrenia is caused by um, an excessive pruning of synapses from some kind of poorly understood neuroinflammatory process. Um, So in that sense, again, um, there are strong suggestions that um, beta amyloid may be getting overproduced, um, because of some kind of immune challenge. Um,
1: so can I just, um, stop you here and sure. ask, um, yeah. in ter- you know, a lot of times, um, a lot, well, a lot of chronic diseases go back like, there's a connection to family history. Um, we're seeing, I think more early onset, um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's due to better testing or screening, but um, oh, sorry, sorry, not sure what that
2: that's, was. That's, <laughs> a, that's my cell phone that I did not turn off.
1: Uh, okay, that's OK. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, do, we do the best we can with these. Um, is there any test that a person who is worried, obviously a lot of people are worried about Alzheimer's disease, but um, yes. uh, is there any test that a person can do? When should they start doing them? Um,
2: um, I would say that there is is evidence that we can make earlier diagnoses. I don't think there's any evidence that earlier onset is increasing. Um, What we have now is a a complex staging scheme for Alzheimer's disease. Um, And let me talk a little bit about that because it relates to an answer to your question about what kind of workup somebody might might profitably get. we used to think of Alzheimer's disease as as just this clinical process of cognitive decline. In other words, you became forgetful, and you became really forgetful, uh, and as you became really forgetful, you lost other cognitive functions, your language declined, you had more word-finding problems. Most forms of Alzheimer's disease involve this so-called amnestic phenotype, in other words, where forgetfulness and progressive erosion of short-term memory is kind of the dominant cognitive signature. But we we know that there there are other um, cognitive phenotypes or other cognitive signatures. In other words, some people don't have that classic amnestic um, signature. they have other signatures like they can become uh, very disorganized and disinhibited, or they can become apathetic, um, or they can demonstrate a primary and progressive type of aphasia, in other words, primary erosion of language, where language is, is the domain that's falling apart early. Um, and even some forms, uh, for example, there's a form called Baylin syndrome, which is kind of a visual spatial um, disconnect, um, people lose the ability to map space and to, um, uh, construct, uh, visual space properly. So it's not all just forgetfulness, but that's the vast majority of, of, of histopathologically confirmed Alzheimer's disease. Um, so let me go back to this question of stages. In other words, Um, If somebody's worried about Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, how do you approach the problem of of confirming that you either do or don't have it? And that's that's complicated. The disease comes in two forms. One is called familial. um, And this is related to three families of mutations, all affecting the amyloid precursor protein processing. Either the precursor protein itself is mutated or the secretases, the cleaving enzymes are mutated. And this l- yields a kind of an early onset version of the disease, um, probably because of overproduction of the more neurotoxic forms of beta amyloid, particularly beta amyloid 42 which is hard to get rid of and is perhaps particularly neurotoxic. Um, But that is not uh, more than a few percent at most of the Alzheimer's disease pie, so to speak. It's a tiny slice. That's the familial disease that looks like it's pretty much genetically determined. Um, In other words, if you have a mutation in one of those three pathways, It looks like if you live long enough, you're going to get the disease. And of course, this becomes, you know, perhaps the strongest evidence that we have that amyloid has something to do with Alzheimer's disease, (laughs) even if it's not a straight linear cause. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of Alzheimer's disease is not familial. It's what we call sporadic or non-familial. But even there, there are. Uh, genes, particularly one big ticket item referred to as APOE, which stands for apolipoprotein epsilon. And there's a particular allele or a particular endowment called uh, allele 4, APOE 4, that is a very significant predisposing factor to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh it's it's not it's not deterministic in other words you can have this gene and still not get ad and conversely you can still get ad without the gene um, but it does convey if you have one copy of the allele it conveys about a three times um, risk elevation which is pretty significant if you have two copies what we would call you know homozygotes or both copies um, are APOE4, you have about a 25 to 30 percent, a 25 to 30 times greater risk. In other words, it's almost deterministic. In other words, if you live long enough, you're gonna get Alzheimer's disease um, with probably very few exceptions. Um, And, of course, that raises the interesting question, what the heck is APOE doing and and why does it have a relationship to AD? Um, And that may have two answers. One is um, APOE4 is poorer at clearing junk proteins out of the brain, including, of course, beta amyloid. So your, your garbage removal is poor, and secondarily, um, it predisposes to more inflammation. Um, and both of those may be important. So if somebody is worried that they might have um, Alzheimer's disease, the first question is, well, did your, either of your parents have an early onset dementing disorder? And by early onset, I mean sort of before 60 to 65 Um, And was it characterized by, again, forgetfulness principally um, in its early stages? If the answer to that is yes, it's possible, although unlikely, that you might have, um, you know, one of the genes that creates familial AD. Um, More and more families are sort of becoming aware of this because there's been so much, you know, sort of publicity about this family of, of mutations. Um, again, it's it really is only about, you know, one to maybe 3% of the whole pie of Alzheimer's disease. So it's unlikely that, you know, you've got that problem. You may have APOE4, on the other hand, um, and you may have a family history that is not familial AD, but Simply, an increased incidence of non familial AD in your family background because of APOE4. You can get a genetic assay that shows whether or not you have APOE4. Um, we don't think that that has a lot of clinical utility, again, because APOE4 is not deterministic and it doesn't really change anything that you might be doing. So, in that sense, you know, diagnostic information without a change in an intervention or a treatment algorithm is, is thought to be sort of, you know, low yield or no yield. So we don't recommend that. What we do recommend um, is that there are a group of, of increasingly um, definitive biomarkers, as we call them, that you can get done. Um, some of them are somewhat expensive. So, you you know. Um, You would need to have an insurance uh, uh, standing behind you on that. Um, The most expensive one that tells you whether or not you're somewhere in the Alzheimer's disease trajectory is an amyloid PET scan. Um, This basically tells you um, whether, whether or not you've got um, elevated deposition of beta amyloid in your brain. Um, there's another family of, of biomarkers that you can get done that is less expensive, but somewhat more invasive. And these are, uh, protein assays of cerebral spinal fluid, which involves getting a spinal tap, which most people find, uh, somewhat unpleasant, uh, you know, big needle, <laughs> insert it into your back. Um, even though they give you anesthetic for that, it's not pleasant. Um, and of course, it's scary to s- have somebody sticking a big needle into your spine. Um, obviously, they don't want to hit the spinal cord. They just want to sample a little bit of, of cerebral spinal fluid. And what you can see um, as people are in the very early stages of this process, what we would call the preclinical stages, this means you have not started any version of a cognitive decline, but you have started to deposit significant amyloid in your brain, is that the amount of of amyloid, particularly beta amyloid 42, goes down in cerebral spinal fluid. And that's a little bit paradoxical, um, but that's because it's not being cleared out. In other words, if if the levels of it are higher it means you're clearing it out and it's not getting deposited in the brain and we know from lots of research that this this marker in cerebral spinal fluid is pretty definitive in other words um it's it's almost as good as a a brain biopsy which you don't do uh simply because it's risky and expensive And the beta amyloid PET scan is also pretty definitive. Um, Interestingly enough, and, and not surprisingly, your CSF beta amyloid goes down years before you would be beta amyloid positive in a PET scan. In other words, it takes years of sort of declining clearance of this stuff to get to a point where you've got a lot of it deposited in your brain. And again, this this characterizes what we call the preclinical stage of the disease.
1: Um, okay. Can I um so say I, I had a spinal tap and there was low beta amyloid in the cerebral spinal fluid. Um I get that back and I'm like, oh no, I'm on this trajectory now. Uh, you could be,
2: yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's uh Concerning what yes. can I can I do anything with that information? Can I change that trajectory? Um, I think that's what people really want to know. Like right. if, if they had this test, is there or even if they didn't have the test and just maybe assumed given their family history, is there anything people can do to possibly change this outcome that you know of A D or? slow it down, slow down. Yeah, the decline. That
2: is the 64 million or $64 billion question. Um, and we, we don't have a definitive answer. In other words, it looks like there's several things you can do that are protective, that reduce your risk, um, wherever you are on this trajectory. Um, but they're not, there is no bulletproof protection. In other words, um, and, and this is one of the things that, you know, everybody wants. It's sort of like, well, what good is it to just reduce your risk? Um, And my answer to that is there's no bulletproof protection in relationship to any disease of aging, cancer, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, other neurodegenerative disorders. There's just risk elevation and risk reduction. There is no, you know, titanium shield, so to speak, that guarantees you're never going to head into that trajectory. But with those caveats, we know that there are large classes of things that reduce risk, um, and some of some of this is now kind of in the public domain and public consciousness. And and at the top of the list are you know diet and exercise, <laughs> our old friends in relationship to heart disease and in relationship to type two diabetes, and increasingly. In relationship to cancer, um, these things are preventative. Uh, aerobic exercise at least three times a week, more is probably better. 30 minutes a day, um, getting your heart rate into that so called 80% zone um, and keeping it up there for 25, 30 minutes. Very significant protective factor. Um, a Mediterranean diet um, or probably also a so-called Paleolithic diet, and then those are, you know, somewhat closely related anyway. I mean, the Mediterranean diet allows um, grain grain products, uh, pasta, bread, and milk products, cheese, um, but if you minimize those, that's sort of essentially a Paleolithic diet. Um, high, high in fruits and vegetables, um, avoidance of foods that might um contain antibiotics or other toxins um and last but not least um a good night's sleep sleep looks like it's maybe the neglected uh, or until recently more neglected lifestyle variable um and sleep is critical because during slow wave sleep um we clear out um you know junk and debris from our brains, including beta amyloid. Um, So people with sleep disorders who get their sleep disorders successfully treated and sleep apnea, of course, is the the big ticket item there. They also reduce their risk for AD. And last but not least, um, reducing um, depression, treating depression effectively and reducing social stress, improving social connection uh, just as we talked about in relationship to depression Um, and depression particularly recurrent depression is an independent risk factor for alzheimer's disease for uncertain reasons but um, improving social support reducing social stress um, improving your diet um, getting regular exercise and a good night's sleep i mean those are um, Uh, the best preventative strategies that we have right now. And, and the some, no, no study has been done that looks at all four of those together, but the studies that have been done just on diet and exercise, um, suggest as much as a 60% reduction in risk just from those two interventions.
1: Wow.
2: Uh, Yeah. It's non-trivial. Um, in other words, it's, it's not just shaving a few points off your, your risk. It's it's really significantly cutting into it. Um, and as I said, no no study has put all those together. In fact, to my knowledge, there's never been a study that puts even three out of the four together. In other words, say diet, exercise, and sleep, or diet, exercise, and social support, or social support plus sleep plus exercise, because we have tended to see these things in – sort of separate boxes, but the research on the diseases of aging suggests that all four of these intercept your risk for all the diseases of aging, including Alzheimer's disease. So there is absolutely huge margin in cleaning up, you know, to the extent that you can, um, lifestyle issues. Um, And of course, part of this has to be uh managing addictions because the flip side of of healthy lifestyles are you know addicted lifestyles not just to classic addictive substances like tobacco but to internet addiction and to and again internet addiction is is oftentimes paired up with social isolation and social stress um reducing carbohydrate and certain kinds of food addictions um all of that um, looks like it's critical and this is you know important to you know have primary care docs focused on this set of issues and i think i think there's more focus on that than there used to be um although there's still a tendency to sort of think of prevention as beta blockers plus statins in other words you you know, focused on blood pressure and lipid uh, markers and so forth. But prevention really has to be centrally about lifestyle change and improving your lifestyle. Um, so if you're worried about Alzheimer's disease or any other disease of aging, that's where your biggest payoff is going to be. We, we do not yet have um, any version of a pill, And we may never have a single pill, so to speak, that prevents people from getting Alzheimer's disease, Um, simply because the more we understand about the disease, the more it looks like a hugely multifactorial, uh, multidimensional puzzle box. Um, I would say the most interesting recent work about that um, is the evidence that the microbiome um, is critical, uh, may be critical in um, Alzheimer's disease risk. And for people who are not knowledgeable about what that means, this is the, the vast and diverse population of bacteria in your GI tract. Um, and it's a bit humbling to consider that from a, a simple cell count perspective, in other words, numbers of cells, You have many more bacterial cells inside of you than you have human cells Um, and all vertebrates have this very complex and still poorly understood symbiosis with probably hundreds of bacterial species um, some of which we know something about but probably many of which we know next to nothing about and the microbiome looks like it has a huge regulatory impact on the brain. Um, and good microbiomes um, promote the brain, and bad microbiomes harm it. And another way of thinking about this is that at least half of what we have attributed to diet um, in terms of health versus disease. Um, may simply be that certain diets promote a good microbiome and other diets don't.
1: Right. Um, and, um, I've written about the microbiome before in relation to depression and anxiety, uh, cause there's some studies on, on that. And, um, what, in your opinion, what's the best way to improve the microbiome? I know people take probiotic and sometimes prebiotic supplements, but, uh, I, me personally, I think... Folks should try to do it through their diet first. Yes, um,
2: for sure. I mean, just, there is a role for some. I mean, before we understood all this, and we routinely and and sometimes still routinely handed out antibiotics like cotton candy, right? Especially for childhood ear infections, um, we were destroying people's microbiomes um, with that practice and. You know, some of those individuals have ended up with, you know, all kinds of chronic illnesses that look more and more like they're related to, uh, micro, you know, this this dysfunctional microbiome that's generated from chronic antibiotic use. But that, that issue aside, um, you know, the classic correlate is, is diets high in fiber from fruits and vegetables um low in sugars or at least you know not, not with a lot of supplemented sugars and that includes artificial sweeteners um all of those look you know bad from the standpoint of creating species that are more pro-inflammatory um, and that promote what is now referred to somewhat colloquially as leaky gut or leaky gut syndromes in other words the The regulation of this intestinal barrier um, looks like it depends a lot on the species that are in your GI tract Um, and there's a a similar and related process directly relevant to Alzheimer's disease, the blood-brain barrier and the regulation of the blood-brain barrier and the regulation of the intestinal barrier look like they're tied together in a variety of ways. Um, and if you, if you introduce through a leaky uh, blood-brain barrier, you introduce um, an increased incidence of pathogens into the brain, viruses, fungi, etc., including commonplace things like the bacteria that causes gingivitis, um, herpes simplex 1, which looks like it has a, a fairly potent relationship with Alzheimer's disease. If you get these organisms into the brain, um, the brain produces more beta, beta amyloid to, to try to combat these. Um, and it may be that over time, uh, if it can't get rid of the beta amyloid, um, what happens in the brains of people who head into Alzheimer's disease is that the, the resident immune cells in the brain, glial cells and astrocytes, um first try to get rid of the beta amyloid, but after uh, you know a period of time, and for reasons that are still somewhat mysterious, um, they start going after the brain itself. They start going after synapses and even engulfing whole neurons. Um, your glial cells, um, as, as one person, your immune system in general and aging is, is simultaneously your best friend and your worst enemy. Um, and you want to keep your immune system sort of on your side um, and not have it attacking your brain. And I think there's a lot of evidence that even though beta amyloid has something to do with this uh, problem of um, inflammation in the brain, and, and again, it may be, Uh, produced in relationship to inflammatory stimuli as a defense that after a certain period of time, the beta amyloid itself becomes pro-inflammatory and then your resident immune cells, the glial cells um, go from being what we would call neurotrophic, secreting neurotrophins and promoting growth to neurotoxic, starting to attack the brain itself. Um, There's a lot of evidence that the clinical stages of Alzheimer's disease past this preclinical sort of asymptomatic deposition of amyloid that that as the brain environment becomes more and more inflammatory, we lose more and more uh, cognition. We still don't understand what that transition is like. And, And just to give people a sense of the time frames here, you can have amyloid deposited in your brain for five 10, 15, and even 20 years before you start to transition into a cognitive decline. So it really says that there is something about this uh, transition from an what we would call an asymptomatic amyloidosis, which is the earliest preclinical stage, into a progressive neurodegeneration that we still don't understand and that Amyloid, per se does not adequately explain. Um,
1: but I think it's really positive. Uh, like you said with the studies with exercise and diet um, can reduce your risk by sixty percent, mm-hmm. which is not insignificant. And then oh yeah, uh, it's huge if if more people focused on sleep hygiene and also, uh, maintaining social interactions as, as we age, you, I would assume, I'm just assuming I, without a, a, a test, but, um, would, it, it'd probably be a lot higher than 60%. Maybe. Yeah. I
2: think you have to assume that. And, and it, you know, because of, um, and this, this is a big problem in science in general. It's what I call siloed knowledge. Yeah. In other words, you've got, um, the biology of aging in this silo over here, and you have Alzheimer's disease researchers merrily chasing after amyloid without really understanding how Alzheimer's disease is a disease of aging. It's not simply a disease of amyloid. Aging is the single greatest risk factor for AD, and it's also the single greatest risk factor for all of the diseases of aging um and um we know from a lot of other work that aging involves a whole host of changes um mitochondrial decline and these are the parts of our cells that that create energy molecules um sort of been referred to as the powerhouse of the cell um, that declines in aging our dna is progressively more damaged Um, And that yields something called cellular senescence. And there's a lot of evidence that cellular senescence is critically involved in Alzheimer's disease and mitochondrial decline is involved um, and the disinhibition of inflammation. In other words, as we get older, um, our learned immunity or so-called adaptive immunity declines and innate immunity is upregulated probably as a compensation Um, and you can think of this as sort of like you know you've got a increasingly dysfunctional fire department so you send them out into the neighborhoods just kind of randomly to hose down houses and maybe break down a few doors just in case there's a fire (laughs) Um, you know obviously that would be crazy (laughs) to have your fire department work that way and you you know the phone lines would be blowing up but that in fact is what your immune system is doing as you're getting older it's becoming you know again less your best friend and more your worst enemy um and in alzheimer's disease the evidence is quite compelling that the brain is really inflamed um as you get into the clinical stages um so it suggests again that all of these age-related processes are relevant to the disease, um, and in that sense, it's it's really quite daunting. Um, you know, we've we've had this idea; um, it's been out there for a long time. Well, somebody will find a silver bullet, so to speak. Somebody will find a cure. Well, there are a lot of problems with that. First of all. Um, what might protect you at one stage of the disease, um, what might be an effective intervention, might be very different at a different stage of the disease. And there's a lot of of thinking at this point that once a cognitive decline has started and has gained a certain weight of momentum, um, it may be very difficult to arrest that because as as the level of inflammation ramps up and as your immune system damages your brain more and more, the damaged neurons themselves are inflammatory signal. Mm. So you've got a lot of positive feedback and, uh, and it's therefore I think much harder to restrain this process once it gets rolling. So the Mm -hmm. idea that, that there is any version of a cure that is, that is stage independent, that is independent of stage, looks just plain wrong. And secondly, and this is true for all the other diseases of aging as well, if a disease of aging involves these, in a sense, malignant forms of cooperation between a whole lot of age-related processes, you cannot restrain that with a single target approach. And this has been, if, if I could, if I could blow up a single idea out there in biopharma, it's the idea that diseases, chronic diseases, can be treated with single-target therapies. I do not think that there is any evidence to support that, and an enormous body of evidence against it. In other words, um, even those <laughs> even those single-target therapies can be moderately effective in relationship to these chronic diseases. Um, we're going to need to develop multiple targets, multiple forms of intervention. Um,
1: and I guess that would be, um, I, I have to run soon here, but um, in terms of future approaches or where, how people should structure the research, um, what, where do you think we should go in the future with this?
2: Well, um, we, we've had you know, decades of chasing after amyloid in a variety of ways. Um, First, with, you know, uh, secretase inhibitors, those have failed dismally. In fact, some of them make people worse. Um, uh, We've segued out of that approach. In fact, I don't think anybody believes that inhibiting the, uh, uh, the secretases, the things that cleave the precursor protein is is a meaningful strategy at all. We had an initial approach with um, um, so-called active immunization in other words where you inject people with beta amyloid 42 and uh, even though that was successful at clearing getting the immune system to clear beta amyloid from the brain it was had no impact on cognitive decline um, and that was again in clinical stage patients. So. At this point, um, the, the dominant idea is, um, passive immunization. In other words, you give antibodies, um, but antibodies that don't create as much inflammation and that target, uh, one particular assembly state of beta amyloid, what's called an oligomer. This is a couple of two or three or a small number of, of beta amyloid 42, um, or similar species that are stuck together. And the evidence is that those oligomers really do have a destructive impact on synapses. They may not be the only thing, you know, destroying the synaptic tree, because again, I think inflammation is also destroying it, um, our immune system, in other words. But the current emphasis is on antibodies that might get rid of those oligomers at an early preclinical stage. So that's one really, you know, big, hot, hot item is can we get an antibody that gets rid of this, this more toxic assembly state? And if we do, can we prevent the the trajectory into cognitive decline? We don't have an answer to that yet, Uh, but there's reason to be at least cautiously optimistic That if this is applied early enough, you might, at least for some patients, be able to prevent that segue. A second approach, which, you know, piggybacks with that, is how can you get your glial cells um, out of this neuropredatory, neurotoxic pathway? In other words, you know, the glial cells were thought of as, you know almost like an epiphenomenon well maybe they're doing more good than harm because the glial cells are vacuuming up beta amyloid well yeah they are but at some point and this again is is not very well understood at some point they sort of stop vacuuming up beta amyloid and they start vacuuming up your brain (laughs) for lack of a better term they start vacuuming up synapses and whole like, neurons like a zombie well exactly it's like <laughs> you know the immune system zombie turns ass. turns on the brain and starts destroying it so another question is can can we come up with some kind of uh, immunomodulator that gets into the brain and keeps the glial cells from from heading down that direction, just keeps them focused on getting rid of the beta amyloid, but keeps them from crossing over into this other operation where they're trashing uh, neural networks. And that is a really big ticket item too, and we don't know much about that at all. We do know, for example, that if you take anti-inflammatories, let's say you've got bad, you know, uh, either rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis. If you take rheumatoid arthritis, if you look at rheumatoid arthritis, and you take cytokine blockers, those folks have protection against Alzheimer's disease. Interestingly enough, it's not again bulletproof protection, but it's significant reduction. And if you take, let's say, you got a bad knee and you you know taken 400 milligrams of ibuprofen twice a day for a bad knee for many many years your risk of ad goes down Hmm. interestingly enough and this is this is the kind of puzzling and frustrating thing you see in the research all the time if you take ibuprofen once you've started a cognitive decline it doesn't make any difference at all Hmm. um and if you take cox-2 inhibitors which inhibit only one isoform of cox which is thought to be more involved in inflammation um those actually deteriorate uh and th- those increase your risk of ad <laughs> which is sort of bizarre but uh again it's one of these sort of puzzling correlations that we can't explain i mean we know that cox 1 which is one of the isoforms is involved in inflammation in the brain and ibuprofen inhibits that so um uh, I would not recommend that, you know, people start popping a lot of ibuprofen because that has some. I was just going to say,
1: that's probably going to happen now.
2: <laughs> that that has some risk associated with yeah. it too. And you may also disrupt your microbiome and intestinal permeability with a lot of ibuprofen. So there's, you know, you may be taking away from one side and adding to another side. But again, the, the research suggests that, that, A wide variety of anti-inflammatory interventions, and that includes exercise and diet, both of those are anti-inflammatory, help prevent this disease. So um, there's still a lot we don't understand about this, but I would emphasize, you know, if you're really concerned about AD, take good care of yourself in the ways that we've talked about. Um, And right now, that is your best protection.
1: Um, thank you so much, Dr. Wapford. That was really interesting. I learned a lot, um, and my I pleasure. Know, yeah, um, and I know you also have a slideshow to go along with this, so maybe I can share some of those on my blog too. I'm sure people would be interested.
2: Absolutely. I'll try to put that together, uh, in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Well, thanks so much. I got to run here, but appreciate this a lot.
2: Um, entirely my pleasure. And thank you again.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks so much for listening guys. Uh, I hope, I hope you feel hopeful. I know I did after listening to that. Um, all right. I hope you subscribe to causes or cures. We have some great guests coming up. We're going to talk about the keto diet next intermittent fasting, uh, another one on EMF radiation and sensitivity, you know, all that wireless stuff. And, um, uh, Hope you find me on Instagram, Facebook, or just go to my website. And shortly, there will be a new book there that is a parody on the wellness industry that I also illustrated. Um, but nobody is sacred in the book. It's um, I I enjoyed writing it, so I think I think you just have to read it. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. All right, see you later, guys. Have a good one.